Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. It's middle of August almost, and um, we're starting slowly but surely to get back into the groove of, I hate to say this word, fall. We're not even close to fall. Back to school. Back to school. Back to school. Feels like it's close. Like that's what it feels like. It's close. This is back to school season. Maybe not fall, but back to school season and reality. Back to reality. Of, yeah, after a really nice low key summer and uh, camps and travel and all of that stuff, like having to really start to think about uh, getting back to uh, getting back to routine. Yeah, for sure. And you know, we could spend this entire intro for this episode talking about the humid weather, but we just did that, so we'll spare everyone the. De- details and just uh, go back to our episode 136 from last week for a recap on how to navigate uh, high dew points and humid weather running. And just in a nutshell, um, you are not alone for those that are on the struggle bus. And if you feel that your running has sucked this summer, it is not you. It is the dew point and it will get better. But instead, what we wanted to talk about in our intro today is another one syllable word that we hate to talk about, but it's still around, and that is uh, COVID. And that's not two syllables, I think. COVID. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah one word, two <laughs> syllables. Sorry, I need to go back to school. I, Sorry, wasn't I just want to get a lot of feedback. Excuse me. Yeah, COVID is two syllables. I, 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 I swear. Sometimes my brain is like in on a vacation. Fog. I could, br- I could blame it on COVID brain, but that wasn't, that was just me trying to get ahead of myself. But here's the thing. We, we're not going to talk on this episode about masking, being careful, all of those things, because we're now in a point in all of our COVID journeys where we understand that everyone is responsible and everybody needs to do what they feel is best for them. And what we mean by that is as an athlete, if you have a race coming up or just in general, you don't feel like getting sick, you know what to do. If you have a big event that you don't want to miss and it's something that's very important to you and you feel like there's a risk, but the benefit of attending that event indoors with your loved ones outweighs the risk, you know what to do. That's where we are in our country. That's where we are as a society, as we navigate this thing for, um, you know, into another year. But there is an exception, and that is among runners. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times that we referenced last month, it was um, around July 3rd, that talked about returning to running after COVID, not returning to exercise after COVID, but literally returning to running. Because runners in particular, endurance athletes are struggling, even those who have had minor cases. and. We as coaches are finding this to be a problem. We are watching it. We are seeing it in real time. Um, At least half of the runners we are currently coaching have had COVID this summer. And most of them have had very mild cases, but most of them are struggling being able to return to running. And it is not because of the humidity. These are runners all over the country. Therefore, we wanted to bring on an expert, and he's coming on next, Dr. Todd Olin, to talk about this. But before we bring on Dr. Todd Olin and we introduce him, we want to talk about our own experiences as coaches and what we're finding. And we want this to help all of you who are listening, should you get COVID, if you're recovering from COVID, how you can best optimize your running 
when that happens. So Lisa, go ahead and, and talk about what you're seeing. Yeah, I think uh, I think you know, most importantly, hopefully this serves as kind of reassurance to people who are, who've had COVID and are trying to get back into running if they're not feeling their normal self to kind of have some validation that it's not in their head. It's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. Um, I will say, I think that the heat and humidity doesn't, doesn't help. So I think it's hard for a lot of people to distinguish, are they feeling crappy because of the heat and humidity? Are they feeling crappy because of COVID? Are they feeling crappy because of some other stress in their life? Are they feeling crappy because of menopause? Are they feeling crappy? You know, there are a lot of other factors, so it's hard to control for everything. But um, I think we have a pretty good sample size and we bring Dr. Olin on because he's got a bigger sample size, but we have a, like you said, at least half, I would venture to say three fourths of our runners at least have had COVID in the last couple of months, most of them in the last month. And, you know, just when we start to think maybe it's waning out and we're not, you know, every day almost we get an email from somebody saying, I, I tested positive today. And we're actually even starting to see second rounds of people who maybe had it back in January, February, March, and now they're getting it again. Um, so, um, you know, and, and I think it's very, um, varies individual to individual. So that's, you know, obviously um, goes without saying, but one thing that we are seeing is uh, I think a frustration on part of all runners, because we're all kind of type A runners who don't want to miss any of our training and we need our endorphin high of running of being afraid to miss runs and maybe um, either convincing ourselves that we're okay to go out and run when we may not be, or, um, uh, you know, kind of pushing through um, symptoms that maybe in a normal year, you know, if you had a cold and we always talked about um, uh, shoulders up symptoms, we're okay to run through shoulders down symptoms symptoms were not. So I think a lot of people are relying on that. Well, I only have a sniffly nose. I only have a sore throat. I only have some congestion. I'm going to go out for an easy run. And, and one thing that we are seeing um, is sort of a prolonged um, uh, and nonlinear experience of symptoms and recurrence of symptoms. So, uh, you know, a good example of a runner who had very minor um, COVID symptoms. Uh, this runner actually didn't even think that they had COVID. They were pretty sure it was just, you know, they were run down. Um, uh, rapid test came back negative and they got a um, PCR test and it came back positive. And they were actually pretty shocked that it was positive because they just didn't feel like, feel that bad. So, um, you know, this runner uh, did take some time off and, and sort of ease back into things. Then was feeling really great. and. Uh, had an easy run on their schedule, but went out and decided to run a fast run instead because they were feeling good. They were running with some fast friends. And uh, sure enough, uh, a few days later, ha have really had some uh, re-emergence or recurrence of COVID symptoms. Um, so back to brain fog, back to feeling uh, fatigued. Um, so, and this is now, you know, three or four weeks post COVID. So we are, and we are seeing that very regularly with our runners where they'll think they're better, they'll have a few good runs, and then they will um, have some really bad runs and say they're feeling kind of back to the way they did a few weeks ago. So again, not linear, and there's really no rhyme or reason. Like I said, some runners have symptoms and are really, you know, sidelines, so they get just knocked off their feet for a few days and they are not running. They, are, they have no desire to run and they're not running. And then there's others who don't have a lot of symptoms and feel like they could run run through it. And both sets are having similar longer term. I wouldn't say you know, super long-term. Some are back to feeling good in 90% of their runs just a few weeks later, but a, a lot have days where they are experienced a kind of a, re, a recurrence of the COVID symptoms. Again, um, like, you know, uh, 
COVID fogginess, uh, fatigue, a lot of fatigue, um, high heart rate, um, breathing issues. Uh, we hear a lot from our runners that they feel like they're running at altitude. That's one of the kind of the common um, post-COVID uh, symptoms that they're feeling when they're trying to run. Um, so like you said, you know, we, we've been advising our runners to um, err on the side of caution. You know, you're not gonna lose all of your fitness um, the longer you take to come back from COVID, the longer it's going to take you to, you know, the, the more you're, you're training for whatever your goal race is, is going to be affected. So if we can kind of condense that time, um, better take some time out at rest and, and recover and do easy runs, um, you know, then hopefully we can get back on track. So we've been, uh, probably erring on the side of being too conservative, but we've been, you know, encouraging people to take a week off like totally off and really resting, sleeping, hydrating, and then easing back in with it most every other day, usually starting with walk and then run walk, which is frustrating for a lot of people who are used to, you know, some, some fast times or doing a lot of running. It's, it's, it's frustrating, but um, we've been doing that. And then really do taking it day by day and listening to, uh, you know, what their feedback is. If they go out for a six mile easy run and the next day they're white, we may take a couple of days off if they go out and, you know, if they're feeling good for a few weeks and we start to add some maybe surges or strides back in and that's wiping them out, we dial it back and we just keep it easy again for a week. So I think that's, we've been um, pretty conservative just on the, you know, the, the thought that we'd rather have people kind of get through this and be able to get back to strong running um, versus trying to push through for, you know, out of fear of losing fitness. Yeah, I think this is all you've mentioned everything that that I have seen also with with our runners, I would just add that uh, the recovery is not linear and what I'm finding really interesting is someone who had barely any symptoms and gets back to the grind. And then two weeks later they'll do a track workout because they barely had any symptoms and we're doing all of the easy stuff. Fine. We move back into a, a mild speed workout and then after that speed workout after they had been feeling fine for many days consistently, they feel awful, like they've been run over by a truck. So it's almost like, you know, COVID is an inflammatory, it, it's an inflammatory response. It's a virus with an inflammatory response. And that inflammation, as we've continued to learn about it, appears to be impacting our mitochondria. So it makes sense when you think about it, when we're out there running, running is inflammation, it causes inflammation. And so why wouldn't that be exacerbated if your body still has a little bit of that COVID virus in it? And it's not fair because it is something that affects their mitochondria. As runners, we really rely on that. We're not weightlifters. We're, we, you know, we're, we're not, that's not our primary sport. If our primary sport or our primary activity rather were strength training, we may not feel it as much because our primary activity is running runners are feeling it more. And that is why there have been more articles about running specifically and not just exercise. And that is also why we very much wanted to have someone who's been quoted in this New York Times article and has done a lot of work on this very issue on our podcast today to just speak to this, not only because he can offer guidance, but also he can offer validation because it is really tough when you're going through this and you're training for something and you feel like everyone around you is recovering and getting back to it and you're not feeling right, especially as runners, we all want to, we're all type A, we want to get back out there and follow the schedule and do the best we can. And we kind of ignore things a little bit 
not because we're trying to hurt ourselves by any means, but because look, you know, we're used to running on fatigued legs. So it's really hard sometimes to know, am I fatigued because I'm, I took a week off because of COVID I'm getting back to it. Or am I fatigued because I have some inflammation and I'm just not feeling right. And so we're hoping that with more research and with more data, we'll be in a position as coaches to be able to help our runners identify that. But in the meantime, we just want to provide a lot of information. I also want to mention, I listened recently to a great uh, podcast episode on the rambling runner where um, he also interviewed a physician who talked about this COVID response among runners. And so it gave, not that we needed more reassurance, but it certainly gave us reassurance to know that this is not a phenomenon that is just happening to a few runners, but it's happening to a lot of runners. And we are really trying to be positive here. We're not trying to be Debbie Downers at all, but we really want everyone to fully recover. And look, maybe this race that's on your calendar for the fall, you you really were up setting yourself up for a PR. And maybe right now after recovering, you're feeling like you could PR, but you're not quite sure. Instead, maybe shift your goals a little bit and say, you know, I think I can PR, but I'm really instead going to think about getting that PR on recovery as well, because I don't want to deal with this thing for another year. I want to make sure I fully recover from this and and really address all this inflammation. Yeah. And Julie, you can kind of speak from personal experience too, because you've been um, struggling with um, the the after effects of of COVID for, for a number of months now. So, you know, how are you feeling and, you know, what are you? And you can directly relate, I'm assuming, to to the frustration. And how are you kind of managing that? And how are you adjusting your goals? So, you know, on the one hand, the good news is, and I talked about this a few minutes, a few months ago, initially my heart rate was high for every single run I did, no matter what the pace was. And um, I'm very pleased to report that my heart rate is now back to where it was before COVID. And, and my runs have been reflecting that. So that's the great news. Uh, the not so great news is I definitely feel like I need so much more recovery than I did before January. And it is not my imagination. I've been tracking it. I've been writing things down and I find when I do a hard workout or when I do a race and I haven't done any races longer than a 10 K in June. And since then I've done a few five K's. And the reason I really like jumping into five K's every three, four weeks is because I feel like it gives me a good measurement of where I am. So I'm approaching these races, not as sort of, I want to do the best I can. It's more, I want, I'm curious to see where I am in terms of my fitness. So when I go out and do these five Ks, I'm about a minute to a minute and a half slower than my typical 5k time. However, it's been a lot hotter this summer than usual. The dew point has been much higher. So I'm going to give myself a little bit of a buffer on that and say, I'm about a minute slower and I will take it. I'm fine with that because my everyday paces are much, much slower right now. So if it's only means that on race day, it's about a minute off. I'm good with that. So that's where I am. Um, I am not giving up. I know eventually I will get back to where I was before. I'm not quite there. I don't think that running the Boston marathon helps me to be honest. I tried really hard to manage that training. I know I talked about it a lot here on the podcast. I feel like I did the best I could. I didn't do any speed work. I did all my runs easy and I went out there and ran at what I perceived it to be my LSD, my easy pace for that race. And I did it, but 
recovering from that marathon took a lot more out of me. And I, I know it wasn't the best thing I could have done for my body at that time. And I, you know, going back, would I do it again? You bet, because it was Boston and I was able to do it. But do, and do I regret it? No. But am I still dealing with some of the ramifications? Probably. And that again, goes back to the inflammation. Um, so that's where I am. And I think for me, how, what's helped me is understanding that for me, running isn't always about achieving a specific goal. It's about maintaining my health, my fitness, my sanity and, and jumping in races for me, regardless of the time is really fun for me. I really enjoy that. And no, this isn't my best year in terms of times, but I'm not injured either. And I'm out there doing my thing and I'm okay with that. I think that's great. And I think you raise a good point of kind of that um, risk benefit analysis that runners may be going through now that are thinking about, do I do my goal marathon when I just had COVID or do I change my goals? Well, you know, it really depends on, you know, is it Boston? Well, then maybe, you know, the, the, that you tweak your approach just like you did and you have realistic expectations after in terms of recovery, or maybe you think, you know what, no, this isn't a do or die race. This isn't my Boston marathon. This is a, you know, fall uh, race early fall race where I can switch to a later fall race and, you know, maybe give myself a few more weeks to, to prepare. So I think it's a good example too, of kind of the analysis that you might want to go through in your head. If you're thinking about, have I been set back so much in my training, um, that I may want to change my goals. Yeah. So we have been talking about this a lot between us, as you all can hear, because we're, we're talking about it now. And it's really been in the forefront of our minds as coaches, because we want to do our best as coaches to support our runners and, and provide them with all of the knowledge that we can. And so to that end, we are really thrilled to welcome Dr. Todd Olin to the podcast. We have seen Todd quoted in numerous articles, including a few with Dr. Jonathan Kim, who was on our podcast in April. Of course, he's the cardiologist that spoke about returning to running after COVID. And Dr. Olin is the director of the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center at National Jewish Health in Denver. And he was quoted in, with Dr. Kim, but also quoted uh, in the New York Times article published on July 3rd, 2022, which we'll link in the show notes titled The Race to the Start Line, Returning to Running After Having COVID-19. So after reading that article and nodding throughout the entire article, right, Lisa, we were totally just nodding along reading it. We knew we had to have Dr. Olin on the show. And we are so grateful that he's coming on because he is one busy guy. And uh, he is the pulmonologist and director, as I mentioned, of the National Jewish Health Exercise and Performance Breathing Center. And he's published a ton of articles, most of which uh, focus on helping children and adults exercise safely and comfortably, whether sick, well, fit, or obese. He's also worked with Olympic level athletes, which he will talk about a little bit um, in this episode, super interesting. And in addition to his work on helping COVID patients return to exercise, he also has invented two novel therapies for exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, also known as vocal cord dysfunction, a condition for which Dr. Olin is considered a global leader. Um, so that's really interesting too, because vocal cord dysfunction does happen among athletes. It also happens commonly among children, particularly uh, adolescents, just before their teens. It actually happened to my daughter. And if I can tell a little uh, world of worlds collide story is 
when this happened to Ella, we were on vacation. It was really scary. Vocal cord dysfunction presents that uh, the individual isn't able to breathe. So it appeared that she was having an allergic reaction, but really for some unknown cause at that moment, her vocal cord her vocal cord started to close and it was quite scary. And we took her to the ER and she was immediately diagnosed with this, cleared. She was okay. It hasn't happened since. But we called our, everyone calls our physician in the family when something like this happens. And so logically she was having a breathing issue. So we called our gastroenterologist physician in the family because that makes sense. Cousin Robbie in Denver and cousin Robbie made a call to his friend Todd about our daughter. And of course I put it together when I was reading his profile and talked to Dr. Olin on the phone before this episode. And of course he knows cousin Robbie and that's who cousin Robbie had called. So small world, this wow. happened 10 years ago. Um, it was 20, it was actually in 2019. So kind of crazy, um, but yeah. So uh, thanks for indulging me with that story, but I thought that was kind of crazy. <laughs> small world, small world indeed. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we're going to turn it over now to Dr. Olin and I hope that everyone gets as much out of this episode as we did. And Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. Dr. Todd Olin, welcome to the run farther and faster podcast. We are so excited to have you here today and so appreciative of your time as we know you are so busy so to get started, we would really appreciate it if you would share a little bit about your medical background and your experience treating professional Olympians and amateur athletes in general. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity and I'm happy to be a resource. Um, yeah, so yeah, my name's Todd Olin. I'm um, a pediatric pulmonologist on paper. And um, just to get to that point, you have to go to medical school and then train as a pediatrician and then train as a pulmonologist, and my interest relates to the interface of exercise with health and disease, which it turns out is a pretty unusual thing that you don't learn about at each of those stops along the way. Um, most of what I do in terms of treating patients is um, trying to solve problems that occur during breathing when people are exercising either moderate or intensely, and that can be a number of different things. And in terms of the different people that we work with, as, as a pediatrician, I'll tend to see a fair number of adolescents and young adults, a lot of high school level athletes and college level athletes, but I have the good fortune um, through a, a little bit of good luck in terms of inventing different things and working with different groups of treating uh, an absolutely disproportionately high number of semi-professional, professional, and international level athletes along the way. And I get to work with different organizations in that space. Um, so I have a decent understanding of what the needs are for the individual and for different groups. Um, if that kind of um, paints a little bit of a picture of what your listeners are gonna be getting for the next hour. Sure. And would you mind sharing a little bit about the organizations that you work with? Yeah. So um, the, the organization I'm most closely affiliated with is the National Swim Team. And sort of through that, um, they're, they're based in Colorado Springs, but the swimmers are um, distributed, I wouldn't say evenly, but you know, throughout the entire um, country. So we were able to work with a lot of athletes at that level. Um, and then Olympians and other sports that are 
connected. Well, uh, because of my close proximity to Colorado Springs in Denver, um, we'll sometimes be able to have the good fortune of working with um, Olympic level athletes that are sort of in the pipeline or, or have been in the pipeline for a while and things like that. And how did you, how did you kind of um, develop this interest? Do you have a history or background in sports or athletics where, you know, what, what triggered this interest in, in this particular, you know, area of pulmonology? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. I think that at a certain point in life, I realized that I'm really good at identifying the gap. You know, so if there's five people in a room, what's actually missing to make that a, a, a highly functioning group? And, and within the field, it, it, at the time in training in pediatric pulmonary medicine, I realized that a lot of patients and a lot of families were interested in the effect of different respiratory conditions on exercise. And um, there wasn't a real coherent way of working with those people. And as a trainee, you realize that through getting sort of different explanations from different people, which can seem sort of like, you know, I, I imagine my two teenagers, like that's really annoying when two different parents look at the same problem in two totally different ways. But I think I recognized really early on that it was a sign that there was a gap and that no one actually really knew. And, and so it was a space that I was interested in and thought I could fill very well. Um, I grew up uh, like sort of in a sporty type family. I was a division one swimmer for a year. I was probably one of the worst division one swimmers in the history of water, but, um, but, but I like understood the mindset. I understood the, the needs of the athlete um, and sort of, and, and probably at a certain point, the needs of organizations to like kind of how to think of helping a group of people as much as helping a single individual. Um, but it, it was probably more the identification of the gap more than the fact that I grew up a swimmer. Like that helped me wake up and continues to help me wake up early every day. But um, it was probably more the, the, the former than the latter. And so speaking of this gap and, and you know, recognizing a gap in, in, in information, tell us how you, how you became an expert in providing advice to athletes um, during COVID. And because you know, that's what we're seeing is a gap in information now. Yeah. Uh, and, and so how did you kind of um, steer into the COVID, COVID world? Yeah, well, so a couple, there are probably a couple different ways. Like certain people are just in a position where they get asked questions more. And, and sort of the reason I was in that position is a, a couple of things. I run a center at a hospital called National Jewish Health. It's a respiratory hospital primarily in Denver. Um, and we have a center that's called the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center. So we're helping both children and adults um, with problems at the interface of exercise and their health and disease. It turns out that there's a lot of uh, world level researchers here um, in respiratory disease. So like sort of where I got involved is a couple of things. I was already really established with a number of different sporting organizations um, and was able to help sort of create policy early on as it related to that. And then simultaneously, um, I'm in one, probably one of the meccas of the world for respiratory disease where a lot of the COVID research is happening or different programs are being developed. And in that space where the athlete was having questions as it related to respiratory disease, I was in a 
um, like I'm kind of at the crossroads naturally. And so um, uh, it, was, it was easier to get a hold of me than to try to figure out somebody else probably. Um, but, uh, the, the, the COVID journey has been an interesting one and I don't think anyone sort of thought they'd be spending the last two and a half years the way that they have. Um, and I'm no different in that regard. Like a lot of what I did changed uh, that week of March 10th 2020, as much as, you know, your lives have changed or changed that same week. So that's a good segue. Take us through, um, once you realized that life was about to change in March of 2020 and people started contacting you, take us through how you were able to develop guidance for athletes who are returning from COVID and what those guidelines look like then and what they look like now. Yeah, so that's a good question. So at the beginning, I think people were more cautious with this than they've been with anything. Like they, like the medical community, more cautious with this than anything that I can remember in my lifetime. And people were really worried about the danger. And so early on, you know, we shut everything down. Like, and I remember working with the National Swim Team on March 14th, 2020, and it was a Saturday. And Essentially, we were explaining why we're going to shut down the Olympic Training Center um, because we don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. And that was when, you know, the death rates in Italy were going through the roof and these stories of people dying in parking lots because there were no beds were sort of coming through the media. And I remember distinctly saying, it's kind of funny talking with you guys, I, I remember distinctly saying that, you know, hey, on Sunday, my son's robotic tournament, robotics tournament, like in two weeks, got canceled, and we were really upset about that. And at the time, I said, and, and yesterday, people canceled the Boston Marathon, and people didn't even bat an eye at that, right? Like they almost didn't care at that point. And like that's how fast this had been evolving. Um, so early on, it was about um, essentially prevention of getting this. And I do remember working. There was a coach there that day, and. And he's, he was, you know, over 80 years old and had some health conditions. He said, should I be worried about this? Should I be scared? And I said, yeah, I think you should be. I'm on, he was you know, multiple immunosuppressants, if I recall. I said, I think you should be scared. You need to get out of here and go home and come out when we know a little bit more. Um, so at the beginning, it was very, very much, you know, in this, let's not do anything. And um, I remember there was a point along the way where um, I think the athletes were really concerned that, and I'm sure you run into this with your listeners and the athletes that you coach, they're, they're always afraid that somebody else is doing more or doing something more innovative. And I do remember thinking like the swimmers were saying, you know, the Australians are working out of some secret compound in the middle of the desert. Australia, you know, it's like, I, it, it, as a parent, I wanted to say, you know, they're not, they're probably being told the exact same thing as you guys right now. Like, you're actually not losing ground on anybody, probably. And, uh, but I do remember how that evolved over the next few weeks and swim team worked with the Olympic Committee to kind of lobby the International Olympic Committee to talk about postponing the Tokyo Games. And, and it ultimately like went that way. Soon after that, I think probably early summer, people were talking about how do we get back into this? How do we do things safely? I, I, I don't think even like the June, July, August that we really knew about the 
you know, what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. I know people are really worried about the heart early on. And so it was interesting that you worked with Dr. Kim. And I, I do remember listening to him speak in 2020 about the different cardiac MRI findings. We were at that time in the summer and the fall of 2020 sort of finding in young athletes, not knowing like what that meant in the short and long term. Um, and then over time, it was more about like, okay, look, we, we got to get back to doing stuff. Let's, how do we do it safe? So the guidance changed from not doing anything to how do we mitigate a problem if one person has it? How do we keep that from 80 people having it? Or if one person has it, how do we try to protect their health in a way that they don't have a long-term hit? Or, you know, how do we get people back on the horse as quick as they can? Um, and, and so it's, it's, you know, evolved. And I know we were talking just before we started recording about how the CDC has taken things another step further today and say, hey, you know, if you're exposed, you know, you're probably, you're probably exposed 25 times a day right now without knowing it, you know, at some level, does knowing it change what you do about it? And I know that's, in medicine, that's always a philosophical argument, I think, but um, I think people are really more interested in how do you, how do you maintain a semblance of normality despite the fact that you're going to have this problem, I think for the foreseeable future, if not our entire lives, you're going to be dealing with this now. So knowing that we're going to be dealing with some semblance of this for a while and knowing that most of those listening to this are athletes and some are very competitive athletes, some are amateur athletes, either way, it doesn't matter. They're passionate about their sport and they want to be able to do it as long as possible. We value so much what you're sharing because you are one of the few physicians that is out there talking about not just how to manage COVID, but actually how to return to sport as quickly, safely, and fully as possible. So we wanted to just kind of break down the guidance that um, has been sort of uh, created as of late and talk to you about your observations in a few different categories. So first of all, just generally, what is at this point the guidance for at any athlete who's had just a minor case of COVID and um, wants to return to sport um, as quickly as possible? What would you say to that athlete if they came into your, in, into your office or you, you came in contact with them at a party or something like that? Yeah, no, that's a super question. And, and I like sort of how you're thinking through this. And probably the first thing that comes to mind, there, there's probably two things that jump out. One is like, how bad is it right now? And how old are you? I think those are kind of the first two questions that jump to mind. Of course, there's the issue of having lots of underlying medical conditions also. Although I think a lot of your listeners are probably on the healthier side of that spectrum. In the younger populations, and this is sort of adolescents, young adults, collegiate athletes, sort of folks in their 20s and maybe early 30s, honestly, like certainly the, those like up into their early 20s, we haven't seen a lot of really, really bad acute disease. Um, I know that early on, especially, and I'm, I'm sure Dr. Kim shared some of this, but you know, early on we were seeing these changes in some people's hearts, but we didn't really know what it meant. Um, what we've, I think, learned since is the number of young people that have really, really been severely affected is, is quite low, um, to the point where I, I wouldn't say I would totally ignore it, but I would 
go to bed each night thinking like, yeah, maybe tomorrow I can probably start something light. So I think for the, the young, and this is, why don't we say up until 22, 25, if it's just a cold, I, I would probably be taking this on a day-to-day, -day. you know, maybe take 24, 48 hours off. Um, the, the only young person that, that was uh, sort of international level athlete that I know that had a really, really severe, there, there's a few cases out there. There was a few heart problems. There was a few blood clots in the lungs. Um, and, you know, and, and some of those people, like the one respiratory person I know was admitted to hospitals, like they really tried to train straight through it, like not miss a workout. And, you know, so I'd say take a couple days off, but you're going to bed each night wondering if tomorrow can you start up something light again. Um, as people get older, I think you need to be a little more careful about it. So as you're into your, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, I, I think that, again, if it's, if it's just a cold and you're real and you're you now vaccinated, you're boosted, you really would have no idea that you were really sick other than the fact that you chose to test. I think that that can be a, a, a quite a quick turnaround. Um, as you're, uh, you know, for each decade of life, I'm, I'm thinking it, you're, you're probably taking another couple days um, to, to jump back on that horse. The problems that we've run into as people have been getting um, a little bit older, you know, as you add a decade here and there, it's the, the problems we've run into are when people push it too hard too quick. Um, is something that we've seen both with kind of acute things and more and more, and I think we'll probably talk about this at some point along the way, with this entity that goes by the term long COVID. I think that the, the over-pushing seems to be a problem kind of psychologically and medically, and there's like a whole bunch of different problems with it, but we've run into problems, I think I would feel very comfortable saying. When you say you've run into problems with people over pushing, is that at any age or is that at starting um, based on your observations at a certain age group? Um, it's, I think probably like once you're into your mid thirties, it seems just to be much more common than uh, the collegiate athletes, you know, the athletes in their mid twenties. It, it seems to be a thing where, yeah, it's a little bit older. It's, it's not so much the, professionals as the highly competitive, you know, 45 year olds. Okay. That really helps because Lisa and I were talking about this offline earlier. We're in August, we're in the, um, right at the start of, um, high school sports season. A lot of people listening to this, our parents, a lot of their kids, their teens, um, have, or will have some type of, of COVID event. And Based on what you're saying, it sounds like if they listen to their bodies and they feel okay, they could probably return to sport a, a lot sooner safely than someone who's um, 15 years older than them. Yeah, I, I think that that's fair. And, and the early guidance was, is you know, based in, I think we heard the term abundance of caution way more than everyone here the rest of my life. You know, but it, at the beginning, it was like, well, for sure, you're taking seven days off. And I think for now, like, you know, 48, maybe 72 hours, you know, even I think 48 seems kind of sort of rational. Um, and in, in some ways, if you just don't know, like, I mean, you're spreading it to all these other people if you're out there, like on the field within 48 hours. So there's a little bit of a group consideration in these guidelines, too. If you could really be on a desert island training alone and you really had no symptoms, 
yeah, I don't really struggle if you're out there two days later. It's it's more the are you going to take out your whole team by you know for the high schoolers you know on the bus to the next you know track meet wrestling meet whatever if you're sitting there coughing in the back row. So we're we're talking about you know we're talking about um, kind of returning to to sport and avoiding these really. Um, serious complications like you talked about blood clots or anything like that and that the chances of that being very low but talk to us a little about what you're seeing with kind of and, and it may not be long COVID but the longer term effects that like you know we're seeing runners and these are primarily not all marathon trainers but people who are doing a lot of volume of running are feeling you know they're not feeling themselves for for some amount of time they're they're um you know we've heard it it described as feeling like they're running at altitude or their legs are heavy or they're we're seeing a high heart rate for you know a workout that normally an easy run the heart rate you know 20 beats per minute higher so are you seeing any of these less maybe you know distinctive or less serious kind of effects with with endurance athletes or athletes or you know at a higher level yeah so for sure so um i think especially as you your population becomes a little bit older and why don't we just sort of in a somewhat arbitrary way just draw the line at 35 um uh knowing that it's not a black and white sort of thing the people under 35 they're struggling with this and there are people over 35 that sail through sort of without a problem but there's probably three big patterns to the entity of long COVID. so one is this fatigue and shortness of breath out of proportion to work rate so this is your so your altitude analogy or you're running with a 20 pound backpack or your legs don't have it um there's kind of a pattern like you mentioned also of this heart rate blood pressure instability where people sit up you know or they're you know they start running and their heart rate's 140 and they're holding like 11 minute mile pace through what you know what's up with the ability to for the autonomic nervous system to sort of beat that heart at, you know, at the appropriate rate and get squeezed the same amount of blood that they normally see. That's certainly a pattern. And there's kind of this third neurologic, you've heard of brain fog. People, you know, they're struggling to find a word here and there, or, you know, they're forgetting. I wanted to say forgetting phone numbers. I think we don't even know phone numbers anymore, but kind of forgetting these things, you know, or they're sort of, up, they're, they're interfacing with life in a way that it's like they're dealing with it through a shower door, like there's this distance that people talk about um, that those three patterns the, the sort of the neurologic the heart rate blood pressure instability and the fatigue shortness of breath are the three big patterns and there definitely can be overlap you know people can have fatigue shortness of breath and the heart rate um, absolutely like in the same person um, they're they're frustrating because they're no one in your listening listening population wants to deal with these things and and they're also hyper aware of it like so many people train off a heart rate or you know and sort of judge where they are in space because of their heart rate it, it's it's forcing people to um you know reset their expectations or like come up with different ways of seeing how they're doing in a way like people don't like setbacks ever you know and, and certainly the the athlete doesn't like setbacks ever and this is definitely a setback for a bunch of people yeah, I think also you point out the hyper awareness. Many of these symptoms would never even surface if one wasn't running or pursuing an endurance sport. 
um, the things you talk about are often specific to the individual actually running, swimming, cycling, whatever it is that's causing them to feel this way because they're putting, um, the, they're impacting their heart rate in a way that they wouldn't be doing if they were walking or strength training. So I feel like that's important to note because these symptoms wouldn't necessarily surface if they were the everyday non-runner athlete or just casual walker. It's really a lot of times manifest through running or similar endurance endeavors. Yeah. So yeah. that there's end spread for sure. There's a spread, but and a lot of the you you nailed it. A lot of them, it's they're struggling during moderate intensity exercise, and that's what they care about. And that's what they want to talk about. And, and I think in the frustration when these runners are interfacing with the medical community, it's it's hard to find people that think in those terms or that um, value it highly at a time where, you know, certainly two years ago when the death rates were really high and things like that. It's, um, it, it's, it's frustrating when you can't find somebody that speaks your language and values what you value. So what advice do you have for patients who um, are in that position, who want to find a medical profession who, in your words, values what they value? And how do you um, encourage athletes to explain their symptoms if they should be so lucky to find a professional who values what they value? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the finding it can be a challenge. And I know Dr. Kim in, in his session with you said, well, you know, you can get online and kind of Google sports cardiology and you know the name of your town pulmonology is probably 20 years behind cardiology in that sense so there are people that care there are people that have a niche interest there are people that are highly active or might be an endurance athlete themselves but um in terms of a, like having a society and things like that or or like an easy to go to the database of people um that's hard and actually kind of one of the things i'm working on is to create that for one of the groups that I work with. And, and I, so I am painfully aware of the, the challenge that goes there. I, I think the number one thing would be to, you know, reach out. Sometimes there will be knowledge within a community. So, you know, maybe in the Los Angeles area, Chicago area, Boston area, it, there actually will be people that say, you know what, there actually are a couple respiratory providers that are well-known for working with different groups. And so to do a little bit of the homework, rather than like necessarily through the medical channels, through the athletic channels, you'll at least get a little bit of vetting. It might not be the most scientific thing in the world, but you get a little bit of vetting through um, those channels. And, and so I actually think that it's great when there's a community of you know, runners, bikers, swimmers, triathletes, whatever it may be, um, that you know, maybe there's somebody out there on, in the different social media platforms that has had a good experience or a bad experience, you know, like sometimes that negative information is just as helpful as the positive information. Um, as far as how to communicate things, um, I, I think there, there's a couple things. One is to get as much information as you can up front. No, none of the doctors are going to have 16 hours to talk about it, right? So to get as much information as you can upfront related to when are you experiencing the problem? What are you actually experiencing? And then video footage can be really helpful too. It just kind of paints a picture um, that's helpful. I think it's helpful to sort of explain like what tier of athlete a person is. Like to me, 
like it actually is quite helpful to know if you're a super elite or you're international level or, or you're collegiate like that's helpful to know but but you can sum that up in five seconds or less and i think one of the things that um is a barrier for athletes is they they actually spend a lot of time talking about all of their athletic accomplishments rather than the physical symptoms so from an advice perspective i'd say like you know say like you know hey i ran boston i run a 238 like you know just so you know like that's this fast per mile on average that that's good enough i i think like and then you can spend the rest of that hour talking about um i'm coughing i'm not coughing you know my heart rate is you know 140 after a flight of stairs or it's you know 56 or you know like you can really cut to the chase i think that would be something that um sometimes i think healthcare providers have trouble working with athletes because they don't quite know how to navigate that when, when the athlete actually gets off track and it's a real natural thing because the athlete identifies with these accomplishments and that like it's just like at a dinner party or whatever and so i think those would be the big things as much summarize information as you can a video if you got it and then summarize your athletic awesomeness in 10 seconds or less, knowing that we value it and we know that you value it, but let's not spend 52 minutes on that. That's great advice. And I think you nailed a lot of endurance athletes to a T. Um, so what, what do you tell or what should we be telling our runners who are, who are struggling and maybe they don't have, you know, enough symptoms or specific symptoms that require them to go to a pulmonologist or a cardiologist, but they're getting discouraged. They're, you know, three weeks, four weeks out from COVID and they're saying that that run sucked. Like I felt, you know, we just had a runner who said this week, you know, I felt COVID again after that run this week, like all those symptoms that I had three weeks ago came back and have brain fog now. And I have, and they're getting discouraged. So what, what do we tell them? Is there any answers or any, um, you know, are you seeing a certain amount of time it's taking? Are there certain things that runners can do? What, what do we tell them? Yeah, no, I think that that's a, a super question. So a couple of things. So the first thing is that I'd say the expectations related to COVID are different than most expectations related to an everyday cold. Um, and so on average, it takes twice as long, and this is based on data out of the UK, it takes about twice as long to get athletes, and these are international level athletes, but back to their um, performance level or ability to train compared to a normal cold. And then the way I'm looking at that piece of information is if on average it's taking twice as long, and a whole bunch of people aren't experiencing anything, that means that a smaller fraction is taking a longer amount of time to get better. And you know, if you wanna make the math easy, is it a quarter or taking four times as long? Or like maybe, and, and it's not gonna be like perfectly black and white. And there's gonna be like a curve to this distribution in terms of uh, you know, percentage of people and, and time to return to full participation. But, but the general expectation is double um, and if you're faster than that, you're wow, you're lucky. Um, and and it's, it's very normal to be longer. The second thing that we've noticed is that it's different than a regular cold in that it's not really linear. So for, and like what that means, because linear is kind of a weird term, I'd say, well, generally with a respiratory condition, for example, if you come out of the hospital because you got 
the flu really, really, really bad, right? So you go home and you're on two liters of oxygen delivered through your nose every minute. Well, a couple of weeks later, you'll be on a liter and a half. A couple of weeks later, you'll be on a liter. And you can sort of taste the progress and you can, uh, and, you know, like each day seems a little bit better. Is that the way most people describe it? COVID has not been that. So you can have two good days and then you're like, wow, you're like completely wiped out for four or five. Um, and so to expect the non-linear return to normal. I would say that most people, even as we're like learning about long COVID, you know, in large populations of some, you know, very um, severely affected people, like a lot of people, the majority are actually getting back to full participation. This is like of the general population. And I think that's the general experience with athletes, but it's, it's painfully frustrating. And it's certainly like in your listener group, like, you know, like miles per week, like 12 weeks out from the marathon, like it's so neurotically in a positive way, micromanaged. It's really frustrating when you're not hitting your process oriented targets. And um, I'd say those might need to change. Like maybe the expectations are a little bit different for that first, you know, like get back on the horse. And what we found is that I think anecdotally, I don't know if there's a ton of true data data on this, but um, the setback is a real thing. So you have a good workout. The whole workout went fine. You actually like hit your intervals, you hit your, you know, the times that you're trying to meet. And then the next day you can't do anything. And, and then the day after that, you can't do anything. And so while you had a good workout, your ability to bounce back from it is totally impaired and you actually messed up your week by dropping your and, and whereas I think a lot of and I'm not a coach and I could kind of think in those terms I think a lot of people you know they'll say like you know we want you to kind of drop the hammer once a week like I don't know if that's quite the same anymore if you're doing it getting away with it and your recovery from it seems appropriate I don't really struggle with that and, and if it seems like you know your heart rate is where it needs to be i you know for the cases that you're running i'd say i probably don't really struggle with it but if you're off in either of those two domains i would think twice if you're having good experiences great if you're not though you might need to dial things back so that you're titrating more to either like the heart rates that you're holding you know for example if you in the past ran two hours and you Logged however many miles, and your heart rate was generally you know 155 or whatever. I, I'd say, well, maybe you're holding the 155 for two hours, but the distance that you cover at that heart rate might be way less than it was before COVID. And um, and similarly, maybe the victory is you're able to get out of bed on the next day and and sort of participate at a level that's semi-productive. Um, you know, I would maybe titrate to recovery time and heart rate, Re maybe recovery time being the priority rather than mileage specifically. What about intensity? Um, we'd see a lot of people talking about, um, not just with respect to mileage, but they'll go out and do an abbreviated, uh, speed workout or something where normally they would do that once, maybe twice a week. And they find, uh, very much echoes what you just mentioned. They do that type of workout and it sets them back for days and it limits their recovery. Um, would you say that 
based on that, your advice would be to avoid that? Or conversely, would you say to adjust it and still pursue challenging yourself in a different way, but do it much more abbreviated? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think some of this is the anecdote, right? There's not like a ton of data. And there actually are some pretty good guidelines. I know the British Journal of Sports Medicine published kind of a return to participation, um, like it, it was sort of a neat little graphic that was, if I recall, it was like colored like a stop sign or something like that. You know, it was pretty easy to digest. I, I think that what we found, because my brain, I think, it, I don't know if you'll consider this an insult, it probably 1% operates like your brain where there's different domains of training, there's strength, there's sort of like speed, agility, there's, you know, you can kind of break it down into different domains, if you will. And early on, I think I, as an individual provider, really struggled with why are we just telling folks, like, you know, go for 15 minutes, hold your heart rate at 120, stop. Okay, and then the next day, 16 minutes or 17, it was just so painfully slow. And I'm, I think like a lot of people in the world, like I kind of want to push that envelope. And I, I've benefited a lot in life by pushing my Right? like waking up early and going a little bit further than I wanted to go in whatever like sort of domain of my life that was. And this was kind of interesting in that it seemed like, you know, and I remember arguing with our cardiologists at our hospital, like it doesn't make any sense. Like why, why are we talking about only the, like the cardio element? Like why aren't we doing a little bit of strength something if somebody's getting really out of breath? And, and I think what it kept coming back to was this experience that people were getting really set back it, like in a way that it wasn't like other experiences that we had had sort of in the medical community at least where okay you thought you're really smart you did a bunch of squats or whatever lunges and and then you couldn't walk the next day and so it was that avoidance of the setback became a much higher priority it was sort of like avoidance of injury for sort of impact type athletes that get into their mid to late 30s like that trumps, uh, you know, like really building strength or, you know, at a certain point, avoidance of the problem trumps pushing the envelope to get uh, incremental gain. It, it was that titration there. And, and we were, I think most of the guidelines came out of the avoidance of the setback. And, and it's probably helpful for the listeners to hear it. it, it that's where it came from, because we were just seeing person after person that was having setback after setback. Um, and so I guess in terms of like what you want to do with that, I'd say, well, you know, at some level, I think I come back to, are you able to recover for the next day? You know, and, um, and again, it's like the, how much weight you squat or how many, you know, vertical feet you do or how many miles you put in. Like, uh, I don't know if I care as much about like that is, can you get out of, it, get out of bed the next day and do something semi-productive? Uh, well, anecdotally, we can back you up on that as coaches who, you know, coached hundreds of athletes over the last few years through this. Um, we've, we've seen that, that, you know, that that's one of the big uh, effects that we've seen is the recovery time. So a lot of our runners, exactly as you described, they'll go out and they'll try a harder workout and then they're like set back for, so as coaches, we've been, you know, more tending, tending to, to trend towards, you know, let's keep it easy until we gradually add back a little bit and, you know, not set you back, you let you get consistency in versus set yourself back. So anecdotally, I think we can, we can back you up on that. Do you see any difference between men and women? 
that's a good question. Uh, I feel this is totally anecdotal and, and, and maybe 100% wrong. So with those caveats, I'd say, I feel like I've talked to more women about these issues than men. I think that um, we don't really know as it relates to athletes. I think the data, the best long COVID registry is, I feel like is based in the UK. And it's really interesting. And like, they're noticing differences across professions, like, like teachers and medical providers seem to struggle more than those in other professions, it turns out. And so I, I think there, there may be something related to gender, but I, I'm, I would feel, I would not bet any money on that. And if somebody had data and waived it, my basic would be totally wrong. I would accept it in a heartbeat. So I, um, yeah, so take that with a bucket of salt. Just listening to what you just shared, I would venture to guess based on the two professions you mentioned that perhaps stress, which has an inflammatory uh, often response in the body may exacerbate some of the symptoms as a result. Yeah, no, it's, it's a totally rational argument. I, I feel like arrogant saying that my profession is more stressful than other people's professions because I think everyone, in the, everyone feels stressed at what they do, you know, and everyone's, you know, pushing the envelope, I think, in what they do, but maybe. Well, that also made me think to teachers and medical professionals, um, do you see any um, kind of cumulative effect of people who are exposed or have um, multiple, you know, have had COVID three times? I mean, I think medical profession, professionals and teachers get ex probably get exposed more. Have you seen any cumulative effect of, you know, people who have had it once, twice, three times? Yeah, um, I'd say a, a little, a little bit, um, and like a little bit. I think that the general experience is a lot of the people with long COVID are getting back to, um, you know, really close to where they were before. It just takes a long, frustrating time. And, and then when they get it again, they might notice a little bit of a setback, but I can't say that I've seen a ton of people, and, and my patient demographic is really different. I'm working with young athletes a lot, right? And I'm not working with, uh, you know, people in their 50s and their 60s with multiple underlying conditions. But I feel like in the young, the under 35 population, the vast, vast majority of people are getting back to where they were just frustratingly long recovery time. You know, like in the past, you had a cold six weeks before a major run. You probably didn't think anything of that. I think now people are starting to be a little bit concerned as to whether or not it'll set them back for that one event. But then if you just say like, yeah, but if you did some, you know, if you just sort of like reset and said, okay, I'm going to do the marathon six weeks later, they'd probably be fine. It's a lot of the young, healthy population. It's just like kind of forcing the time envelope around things, I think has been a real tricky thing for people to navigate. Yeah, you just hit the nail on the head. And that's that's the problem we all have as coaches and runners is um, part of our running is, of course, setting race goals. And races don't care whether or not you've had COVID three weeks earlier. And it's just wrapping your head around shifting those goals when necessary, because even though the race is in three weeks and you may need full a full six weeks, is it worth it to push your body three weeks later because you've signed up for that race versus 
waiting right. and doing one where you can fully recover and not be set back even longer as a result. And that's the reality where we are. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. Um, it is a really tricky thing to navigate with athletes because at some level as a parent of teenagers that, you know, I'm having these discussions around time urgency related to any number of things. Like sort of now being the old guy, I'd say, well, really? Like, is there really a time constraint, right? Like for the, the runners, it's like, well, what's after Diamond League Oslo? Well, there's some other guy. Like what's after this major competition? There's just some other one. Like what's after, you know, Berlin or Tokyo or Boston or New York? It's like, there's just some other one. Like, like there's always another opportunity you know and i get it for the olympic athlete like there's a quad and you only get one shot at that probably in your career it's like okay sure that's a little bit different but um but for the fast 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 majority of us in the world the 99.9 percent .9 of us like oh come on there's just another thing six weeks later and it might be a much better experience it might give you a little bit more confidence going into the thing after that like what do you really like what is the incremental gain you get by forcing yourself into some time envelope? That's a great question. And, and kind of off a little bit on a tangent, speaking of, of Olympics, talk to us a little bit about your Olympic experience and, and how you got involved in that and what that was like. Yeah, so um, I, I, had, it was, I had an amazing opportunity. So about a month before the Tokyo games, um, I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I have friends in places that allow me to have access to opportunities. And so a friend within the Olympic movement within the United States caught wind of the observation that some of the medical infrastructure within Japan was really unsupportive of the fact that the games were going on in Tokyo. And the society in Japan, and I'm not an expert on Japan, is extraordinarily different. And their aversion to risk is totally different than that in the United States. And so my understanding of how this all evolved is that the medical infrastructure within the within Japan was were kind of pulled out of things. And, and there became, there was a need then for healthcare professionals around the world to support some totally unknown number of athletes that were going to be COVID positive in Japan. And, um, and, and you didn't, and, and this all went down about uh, four to six weeks before the games opened, so it was very, very short time turnaround. But what there was is there were need for healthcare. For, there was a need for healthcare providers to operate the Tokyo um, COVID isolation hotel for the Olympic and Paralympic Games, and I was fortunate enough to be selected to be in that bunch. And so there were about twenty doctors from probably thirteen or fourteen different countries around the world that, you know, essentially like met up one day and it was kind of like summer camp like there, you know no one knew anyone with a couple exceptions i knew one of the healthcare providers from norway who is a, a really high flyer in the respiratory world um, as it relates to athletes and um, there were two doctors from the country of kazakhstan it turns out that i think knew each other ahead of time but otherwise it was just a throwing a whole bunch of people in a room and say, okay, now we're gonna take care of everyone that gets COVID, working with the local nursing team. Um, and, you know, like you could imagine how that would go down is the first day there was, no one knew which seat on the bus anyone was riding in. It was a little chaotic, but fortunately we were able to organize 
behind a common mission um, and help people. Um, you can imagine that um, every single person that was um, a patient at that hotel, you know, was not expecting to be a patient at that hotel. I would tell you, as a medical professional, I was terrified that my COVID test was going to be positive when I wound up in Tokyo and that I would be a patient. Um, but um, you can imagine every single person that had to go, that got, had the opportunity to go to Tokyo had to have two negative COVID tests within 96 hours of getting on that plane. And they were all negative or they would have stayed home. And then that third test in um, one of the two airports in, in the Tokyo area, it was positive there. And so it was uh, essentially a totally soul crushing experience for all of those people, whether or not they were a coach or an athlete or some other support staff. Like there was a, I think a media hotel was sort of a separate hotel. Um, so a lot of, you know, I, I already told you guys, like, well, gosh, like the vast majority of the athletes have done it totally fine. That was pretty much the experience. There were very few people that were, um, you know, even moderately sick, but it was more of this, this experience of these people essentially train their entire adult, you know, and, and childhood lives for this moment. And even the coaches, like their entire professional experience was about this moment and it was taken away from them. And so from a um, psychological mental health perspective, it was just totally soul crushing for people. And um, and yeah, so it was a real rough experience like that. It was a very just raw human experience, much more than a, I need to pull out some pulmonary magic trick that I have in my back pocket that somebody else doesn't have. Um, it was more, you know, just meeting people at their at where they're at. And, uh, it's also kind of interesting because very few times in your life as a medical professional or you will know the patient coming in to see you because you've already read about them on CNN. It's one of the more bizarre things in the you know, in, in life, you say, you know, another one, you know, because the Japanese media was all over, another one tested positive at the airport, or there's an outbreak among X, Y, or Z team within the village. And, uh, so it was a real, you know, different experience. Um, but at the end of the day, we had a lot of good friends. I think we're going to actually try to have a reunion at my house in June of 2023 for our healthcare team. If anyone can make it to Denver for a, there's a big, uh, two big or two conferences that are happening like right then and in Denver where I'm based and so we're going to try to have a get there at my house and kind of relive some stories from that time because there were a lot of uh, stories that go along. Oh I, I'm sure it was rewarding to help those who are in such a de desperate isolating situation very suddenly and also no doubt you have a lot of funny and not so funny stories as a result of that experience yeah I mean there's only like so many times you want to spit in tubes some like stuff like that you know like yeah there was just this like day-to-day -day sort of you know, the beat down but I mean at the, at the end of the day too I mean for me it was one of the highlights of my life also like growing up a you know the worst division one swimmer in the history of water to then you know getting to meet different people and walk around the Olympic village was totally inspiring it makes you sort of see what you know the, the amazing things that humans can do when they swim in the same direction get their ego out of the way have a common mission solve problems as they come up like to me that was 
incredibly inspiring and like will absolutely shape the rest of my professional career. Um, and, you know, at some level, I don't really have patience for small problems anymore. I, I want to tackle the big things in life because I can see what you can do when you want to do something big. So it's very, very inspiring. Wow, that's that's an amazing, like you said, an experience not a lot of people get and um, interesting to you know, hear the perspective of, of a medical professional who's there, like you said, not to necessarily provide expertise medical care, but to to support them when they're they're not, you know, not in a great, great place. So that's that's incredible. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you um, kind of approach COVID now and you're, you know, as somebody who's at you know, who, who swims and, you know, obviously wants to stay healthy. What right now at this point, like, how do you look at COVID? What kind of, you know, are you worried about COVID? Are you still masking indoors? Are you worried about your health? You know, if you get COVID, are you, you know, what, how, how are you, how are you uh, approaching life at this point in COVID? Yeah. So like, so personally, so you, I think you guys know, we talked about this with the show, I got hit for the first time within the last month. And, and so it was humbling. Right. Like I'm the envelope pusher, wake up at five every day, you know, check 16 boxes off the list by the time I show up at work every morning. And uh, it's humble. Um, I think the, the, the one of the number one things that I've learned, like sort of from now until the future is it could change. Like so the latest variants seem to be super infectious, but not quite as fatal, especially for those that are vaccinated. So there's not like a fear factor. Um, and I simultaneously know that like, well, what's to say that the next variant's not going to be, you know, super high death rates, right? And so I think that we all kind of feel like we're over it and we want it to get better and we're kind of pulling back. And so I think I'm, I think nimble that the needle could move in either direction. I think that vaccines are going to be different in six to 12 months. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not terrified. Excuse me, I'm going to start coughing from my COVID right now <laughs> as we're talking now. Um, I'm, not, I'm not terrified. I'm humbled. Um, I know it could change. I don't have a lot of tolerance for people that just want to blow it all off. You know, at the same time, like I get it that you just, you, you kind of, you don't want to have it dictate every little domain of your life. Um, as far as working with patients goes, kind of professionally, um, you know, certainly asking everyone if they had it. I can't even remember the last time I talked to somebody that never had it in, in that sort of, because I'm working with teens and folks in their early 20s, like, oh man, I, I, I know people that have this and it's, but it's more healthcare professionals that, you know, are really, really diligent about what they're doing. But, um, you know, so I'll try to find out if people had it. Um, I'm much more getting back to getting to these core breathing problems that are affecting people when they're running, like what what's acting up, you know, that sort of walks and talks like asthma or did COVID unmask asthma? Did you always have COVID, but now you're just noticing you got a problem a little bit more because you had COVID, you know, are the vocal cords acting up? Are there other respiratory problems that are, you know, that we need to be thinking about more than the COVID? I, I think I'm much more getting back into that groove of how things were before um, and uh, you know so in that sense I, I think it's I, hopefully reassuring for listeners to hear that nah, nah we're getting back to 
you know, talking about asthma like it's asthma, talking about vocal cord problems like they're vocal cord problems, talking about oxygen problems and things like that, like they're oxygen problems and, and whatnot. Yes, that's super encouraging. And, and that's a great note to end on because we do want to be positive here and not gloom and doom, but you, um, your information has been invaluable and your experience that you shared with us certainly was super interesting and your approach is very thoughtful and we very much appreciate you coming on and sharing all this with us and our listeners. And I think the biggest takeaway and what we really wanted to emphasize, and you certainly did today is that the symptoms that so many athletes are experiencing right now, it's normal and and you validating how they're feeling and, and giving them the space to take more time to recover, whether that means week to week and day to day or month to month um, versus feeling like they are obligated to adhere to a certain schedule because a race is on the calendar and it's not in their heads. It's really happening. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise and yeah. for validating the experiences of so many athletes out there. Perfect. Yeah. And to validate that if you have the problem and all of your training partners don't, yeah, that's a thing too. And to not feel bad about that. Like it's just to sort of say it out loud and, you know, get it out on the table because it is for the teams that I work with. You know, and then I'm, I don't know like exactly which all the different teams that you guys interface with, but yeah, that's a thing where the person that you're expecting to do very well and in Eugene and whatnot, like just didn't recover like everyone else did. Uh, it's super frustrating for people. But yes, agree, positive. Let's end on positive. And the other day, you guys want to talk about not COVID breathing problems. I am yours. And um, yeah, let, let me know how I can be a resource for you guys in the future. Thank you. We remember a time many years ago when when there were issues like you were just talking about asthma and vocal cord dysfunction that were affecting our runners and we're at the top of our heads. And clearly the last two years it's been it's you know, it's been COVID on the top of our heads, but we hope that we get back to kind of normal, uh, you know, normal medical concerns and um, this starts to become just part of our reality. And uh, like Julie said, we really appreciate you reinforcing that it's just a matter of flexibility and and setting expectations, which I think um, is, is a really great, um, great perspective. And like you said, there's always another race. There's always another opportunity, um, unless maybe it's the Olympics, but for most of our listeners and our runners that we coach, uh, it's not the Olympics and there is another Boston marathon. There's another Berlin marathon. There's another marathon around the corner. So, uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of a very busy schedule. Thank you so much for joining us. And, um, we hope that, uh, you continue to recover all from COVID and get back to the pool and back to everything that you do. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Let Thanks me know if again. I can get resources in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you so much. Have a great yeah. day. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the run farther and faster Boston marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.